of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Happy National Croissant Day, everyone, and welcome to episode 26, the final number crunching installment in our series on the national debt. In the past few episodes, we've learned that history and the data show us that the national debt today is a little less like America's having a heart attack and more like America's on its way to having a heart attack, which is great news. So to cap off the month, the data monkey who in his day job looks at interest rates and debt flows all day long joins me to sum everything up and add his own take on things. And in it, we discuss the diminishing returns on each dollar of debt we take out, and interestingly enough, how reducing farm subsidies could make room in the budget for other things while also reducing healthcare costs. How? You're going to need to listen. I'll be back at the end with my final comments. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the tables on you, Dan. Please. Let's do this a little differently this time. What have you learned so far? Great question, Mike, and actually what I was going to start out with. So here's, here's what I've learned. The U.S. government, since the very beginning, has, was sort of founded on debt. So when we started as a country, we took out a lot of debt to fund the Revolutionary War, and there were all sorts of people who wanted to give us money to shoot at the British, so that worked out great. And then we paid that down, and we paid that down, and then... We got to near zero federal debt, and then a bunch of states defaulted, and it created a huge credit problem for the U.S. until the Civil War, where for some reason, the world decided that a country that was falling apart at the seams was actually a great place to invest money. And so we racked up a bunch of debt then. But basically, there's, there's sort of this trend of the U.S. amassing large amounts of debt for war and then reducing it to near zero until the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And at that point, FDR implements the New Deal. Then we have World War II. And then we pay down a lot of that debt. But really, like it seems like the bottom of debt-to-GDP ratio for the United States is around 30% now for the government we want. Now, getting back to the issue of paying down the debt, you know, I also took a look at the British Empire. And if we use the British Empire in the 1800s as an example, you know, history shows us that if you have a lot of debt and you pursue austerity or you take austerity measures to reduce that debt, it's sort of akin to not putting a new roof on your house in the name of paying down the mortgage. So you'll find yourself the sole owner of a total pile of shit, basically. Yep, yep, and yep. when we saw the and we saw Great Britain sort of fall behind powers like Prussia that invested more for the future, which Brings us to point three, which is as the world's reserve currency, we actually have a that that actually gives us a lot of flexibility when it comes to how much we can borrow and how we can pay it off. Mm. Because effectively, we we don't have to ever default. We just print money to pay it off, and and you know, and inflation still remains low enough where it doesn't seem like there's room for a rapid devaluation of the dollar. So effectively, what that means is that hyperinflation seems distant. However, credit markets don't have an unlimited appetite for U.S. debt. 
And we're also up against this demographic shift where, you know, the population is going to age. A lot of dollar denominated assets are held by pensions. They're held by retirees. And as they start to cash those out, Mm -hmm. that's going to mean more dollars in the system. That's going to mean a lower value of the dollar. That's going to mean uh, the U.S. debt effectively holds or the U.S. dollar, I should say, effectively holds less value. Mm -hmm. And so effectively, we're at a point where we're we're not dying of a heart attack but we're eating a shitload of bacon and eventually it's going to catch up with us all right well first off i want to correct the most important thing here okay okay uh the all the we've walked back the discussion around the limits of cholesterol and the cholesterol uh thesis around heart attacks so yes. uh, actually let's say you're putting yourself more at risk eating a bunch of candy bars instead of bacon bacon's actually good for you Oh, all right. That's an entirely different episode, but we'll say candy bars. Okay. If zero debt is not the right answer, Mm -hmm. and if we start to ask, like, what is a, like, too much debt, right? There has to be an optimal level at some point where you have sort of reached the the best amount of debt relative to your GDP. Yeah. And below which is inefficient and above which is inefficient. And Mm -hmm. we don't seem to have a great sense of what that is. The work that would probably be most relevant to this type of thing is looking back at, um, you know, Reinhardt and Rogoff, two economists who did a a book in 2011 that made a splash Mm -hmm. post the debt crisis. It was called um, This Time It's Different. Uh, And it looked back at the history of debt and GDP. Mm -hmm. Um, And what they found was that once sort of debt surpassed 90%, of GDP, it had, uh, you, they, they came to a conclusion that uh, growth effectively, or real growth, not nominal, but real growth mm-hmm. went to effectively 0%, um, mm-hmm. or, or slightly negative even. Now, there was some criticism of that, um, of that work over time, mm-hmm. and some folks, that, I think some economists at Amherst College actually published a paper correcting some of their work. But, and so that was a little bit of a walk back, but I think the underlying premise is still kind of true, right? So Mm -hmm. it basically said the 90% number may not be accurate because what they found is that when they adjusted the data, it wasn't 0% growth or negative growth. It had just slowed to 2.2 and that was less than the average that had been 3.2 and that had been over 4% prior. So you saw a trend in more GDP, more debt to GDP is actually resulting in slower real and nominal growth. So the question is sort of, it's sort of not a question of like, is there no limit to debt? It's just now a question of what is the number where it goes negative? I liked your point about like the debt we built up in, um, you know, the, was an infrastructure build, right? In the, under the new deal, um, probably has some productive payback on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, we built a highway system. We built all kinds of things to, to, um, to create jobs at the time, but we, you know, we, in, created a whole infrastructure on which we've built a 20th century economy. Mm -hmm. Um, Similarly, you invested in World War II. And it turns out that, one, scaling up the military that much in such a short amount of time and destroying massive amounts of the productive capacity on the European continent then led the U.S. to be an exporter 
to rebuild that continent over the next so the next decades, right? So mm-hmm. for a long time, we were an energy exporter, we were a goods exporter, and not to mention all these new technologies that drove, uh, you know, the automobile, all these things that came along and drove massive productivity gains um, in the U.S. So we had this period when then that debt to GDP worked down. But then sort of we come to the modern era, and I guess I, I'm kind of intrigued with this concept. Is all borrowing the same? Right. Does it, because I think how I'm looking at it is, are you borrowing for investment, which is going to create productivity in the future? And this is sort of along the lines of how people defend student loans, right? That, well, you know, if you borrow to go to college, you're going to have a better job. And therefore the net present value of that is positive. So you should borrow. Now it's probably positive and eroding and, and maybe even less now because of tuition inflation. But the point being that there was, that's a productive you know, um, you, with anything to spend on, mm-hmm. uh, because your own, you know, your own, um, ability to earn goes up. And so therefore borrowing that debt over the lifetime probably makes sense. Mm-hmm. But what we're coming to now, right, is are, are we borrowing for consumption? And it's yes. really hard to argue that consumption spending drives, productivity gains long-term. And I I actually think quite the opposite is probably at work here. And so borrowing into a time when you have demographics that are going the wrong way, just from a total composition of, of the, um, you know, workforce, but Mm -hmm. you know, because the dependency ratio is rising, I mean, there'll just be more retirees per working person. Yeah. But just even if the average age of a worker is going up their product, Mm -hmm. that's a negative drag on productivity. Right. So it's, so these are like, you're not actually, you know, you, you, I don't think it's, I don't think it's earth shattering to say someone at 75, even if they're still working, is probably less productive than someone at 35. So I, I just question sort of as we've gotten to a point now where you have sort of these structural growth in programs that are really about consumption, right? Like social mm-hmm. security is given to you not to save, it's you, you take it out to live on, right? You, your Medicare is to cover your health expenses, right? These are all things that, and the interest payments, I mean, you get really nothing on, right? That's just your mm-hmm. carrying cost of the, the existing debt. So, and as these things continue to grow and they're going to continue to grow because the projected senior population will just continue to rise. The, the growth of the labor force is slowing. Um, and so even just on the, you know, the projected growth in the debt is, is going to surpass even levels of World War II, but the question is, what are you getting for it? It's interesting you take that historical context into mind, because my theory has always been that we are at the sort of creaking end of a 70 to 80 year mega cycle. And and I'm not even going to ease our way into the pool by talking about little things here and there. Like, we're just going straight for the jugular here. We're going straight into the mega cycle. You know, we're not even dancing around this. But World War II, entire industrial capacity of the world is decimated with the exception of the United States. Right. Uh, As the U.S. begins to pump money and other powers begin to pump money into rebuilding 
the industrialized world, rebuilding the industrial capacity, that puts the U.S. at a huge advantage. We become the de facto currency of the world, uh, which is a position we enjoy today. We become the, one of two preeminent military powers. We uh, effectively become a net exporter of everything. And that whole framework leads to a lot of real wealth being created for a period of time. Now, you see that start to creak around the 70s. You know, you see that with the, you see, for example, the Rust Belt, uh, you know, the industrial base of America begins to decline as uh, other countries begin to ramp up their manufacturing capacity. And that's, that's just what's going to happen. And, and, and that trend continues. Now, we have a big enough consumer market where we can keep our own industries alive for a while. And so I think that that worked to our advantage. But then once we hit the 90s and free trade becomes much more front and center, um, that almost accelerates that process. And then we see this issue we're encountering today where manufacturing jobs have been have moved over to China. They've moved over to other parts of Asia. They've moved to Mexico with NAFTA. Now that we have these manufacturing jobs moved out, we have this large group of people who obviously still need to pay the bills, still need to eat, still want to buy the flat screen TVs and the air conditioners. Mm -hmm. Well, that also happens to come at a time where as Asian manufacturing capacity begins to increase, they need some place to put all that money. So they start putting it in US dollars. And what does that do to our own consumer debt market? Well, it inflates it. And so now you have this period from about 2000 till the housing crisis where most economic growth is effectively debt driven. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no, I mean, if you look really for the last 20 years, real wealth creation is more or less stagnant. And it's because people, people's wealth or the, the wealth they thought they were creating for themselves was in home equity. That's disappeared. And so now you have this, uh, you know, post collapse, uh, you have, uh, you have quantitative easing as a way to effectively offset deflation, correct? So, Mm -hmm. you know, at the financial crisis, we have two choices, we can either let the dollar decline in value, which as we learned in earlier episodes is really corrosive, because when your money is worth more tomorrow than it is today, you're not going to spend it. Mm-hmm. And so that inhibits economic growth. So rather than let that happen, we just introduced a lot of dollars into the system. And so it kept the deflation at bay. But what it also did is it created an environment where if you were an investor, you were going to do really well. If you were working for, let's say, a venture capital software company or a venture-backed pharmaceutical company, you were going to do really well because there was lots of money out there looking for returns. Yeah, they were the, lower looking to cost, the, the inflation is like basically the lower cost of capital, right? So you, lo- you get a lower cost of capital for everything that you get sort of excess capacity everywhere. Yeah, exactly. But it's like China any- exports deflation, effectively. 100%. And so, but if you were anybody else, your wages remained relatively stagnant as your food costs increased, as your healthcare costs increased, as education costs increased. And so the way I look at the economy right now is we have a group of people, a large group of people who've effectively been in recession for the greater part of a decade or at, at, at best stagnation. And then you have another group of people, the parts of the economy that are favored by very loose fiscal policy. 
a very large and and that's unsustainable. That's a hundred percent unsustainable. So how how close to the mark am I? Yeah, so I push back on a couple of things, right? Please, because so I, I, yeah. I don't know that, um, or I'd maybe just sort of think about it slightly differently. Um, so I don't know that we'd still be able to make the argument that there's a large pocket of people that gone nowhere. I think you can mm-hmm. absolutely say like wages have been stagnating, but they are growing and that is accelerating a bit. Um, okay. And so, and you get, and it's also look, I mean, just unemployment is very close to a low. Um, I would say I would take a slightly different, uh, take on it, right? Look at what it has taken to make that happen. Right. So we've had this sort of quote, longest recovery, you know, going on 10 years now, um, Mm -hmm. and, and seems to at least sort of still be going, but that's at the cost of, you know, an all time high in federal debt an all time high in state and local debt, uh, corporate debt is at an all time high, Mm -hmm. um, everything except, consumer debt. And the only pocket of consumer debt that's not at an all-time high is mortgage borrowing because to your point, yeah. we got burnt during the mortgage bubble and it's only starting to kind of come back now, right? So so the uh, the housing bubble. So so now that's starting to sort of, you know, curve up again and people are looking to borrow with the, especially with the millennials now reaching sort of the age when they have children and look at housing. And so you're seeing, you know, up sort of recovery in the housing market. So I think that all points to the fact that it's just taking incrementally more and more debt to make this happen like mm-hmm. this. Um, and so that's, I guess what I'd say, like you, even to sort of reach a level of employment where we're at, we we're running, you know, we're running record level deficits and record high amounts of debt to get to here. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, that's at the top of a recovery. It's supposed to be the other way around, right? You're supposed to run deficits at the bottom and Mm -hmm. then you're supposed to be, you know, maybe even not a surplus, but at least the deficit can come down below your, your nominal GDP growth rate. Um, you know, when you're at some point during a recovery, right? So I, I think that's, that's where I think it's sort of odd is that we're not only are we at sort of record level deficits at, at this arguably the peak, um, of, or close to a peak of the economic cycle. Um, mm-hmm. even if it goes on for a couple more years, I'm just saying it's, it's, you know, you've got a few more years maybe before you have some sort of recession again. Mm-hmm. Haven't. Um, and so, you know, this far in having record level deficits that are projected to continue to go and partly that's just going to happen because interest keeps piling up because social security, because people are retiring and collecting on social security, like without structural change, there are certain amounts of these deficits that are just structural that can't be changed. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're just that math is just going to continue to compound. And so I think that's where it, I think it starts to get uh, more an interesting question about like, where are we going with that? And are we fighting a level of, you know, is this continuing to borrow just to consume? At some point, there has to be, you know, there's no free lunch here. So at some point, there is a, a cost to this. And the question is, like, when does that come through? It sounds to me like, if we have real economic growth, so the stuff that makes for real economic growth is wood, and debt is effectively lighter fluid, and you put an optimal amount of lighter fluid on the wood, it's going to get you a nice fire. And if you put too much, you're going to burn that wood and burn that wood out pretty quickly. And if you mm-hmm. don't pay attention to the ratio of wood to lighter fluid, eventually you're just burning lighter fluid effectively. Right. And right. Is right. that? Yeah. I, mean, I think that's 
you know, we've had um, in this recovery to do all this and to keep interest rates down and not to, and to keep things from slowing, right? We've seen, um, you know, the Federal Reserve has effectively had to continue to expand its balance sheet. It's at a record mm-hmm. high because it's mm-hmm. been the biggest buyer of, uh, and they say that's globally that's happening, right? Central mm-hmm. banks are the biggest buyers of these things. And because that's the, that's sort of the only way to continue to keep interest rates from going up, which slows things down because we're so unlevered. And consumption is so tied to that leverage that mm-hmm. you've seen it as soon as last year, we saw the, 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 you know, the three year, right, the 10 year get back up to like three and a quarter and things started to slow down very dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, you know, that's in, in the Fed Reserve had to pivot immediately to come back yeah. into, um, you know, we went from, you know, tightening to on hold to easing all in a matter of months, right? Like it was because they saw things start to slow down very, very quickly. Um, and I think that just sort of points to how how sensitive now we are to uh, rise in the interest rate. And I think you can see this in the data if you think about it this way. Over the last sort of 50 plus years, okay, mm-hmm. um, you can look at, let's look at nominal GDP. So that's effectively what companies, you know, companies grow with nominal GDP, right? So revenue grows. If you're a domestic company growing and you're an average company, you should be able to grow your sales somewhere around you know, what nominal GDP is. So that's real growth plus some modest amount of inflation. All right. So if you look at 1950 to today, you know, the growth in nominal GDP was about 6.7%. From 1990 to today, that's 4.6%. From 2000 to today, that's 4.2%. From 2010 to today, that's 3.8%. So that's, you can see that is a, a pretty dramatic slowing of, you know, what's happening overall in nominal GDP. And what that means yeah. is if you're increasing the debt at an ever faster rate and we're mm-hmm. seeing nominal GDP slowing on average, then what you're getting is incrementally less nominal GDP for each dollar of debt you take on. Mm-hmm. Right? So effectively your return on this, of this investment is going, is falling. And so, yeah. you know, we saw at a point, you know, last year, I think we were at, you know, it got down to sort of 25 you know, you're getting 25 cents of economic activity for every dollar of incremental debt. And then lo and behold, when interest rates went up by, you know, even though they only went up by about a hundred basis points in a percentage terms, right. That cost of borrowing went up, you know, close to 35, 40%. Yeah. Well, that's going to start to really drag your nominal GDP down pretty quickly. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So, is there a point where the Fed loses control over that interest rate? So that's the that's the real interesting question to me. I think it's fascinating that we're at a point where effectively all political parties have just abdicated any responsibility for fiscal mm-hmm. discipline in any way, right? That's telling. I mean, it's sort of this is it's sort of a zeitgeist moment, right? When you just when everybody's just like, ah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll fight over what we're going to spend it on, but we're just going to spend. We're going to borrow, we're yeah. going to spend, we're going to do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. We have just unlimited. We have you know this unlimited credit card. We can just go ahead and do whatever we want with. And I, I okay, let's unpack it. Like why are why is this coming up now? It's coming up now because the fears of the Fed expanding its balance sheet. You know, in 2009, 2010, when Bernanke first went into sort of quantitative easing and you know, they went very aggressively into this expansion, there was a lot of talk about inflation. And I'd argue we have had inflation. We've had asset inflation. We've had massive asset inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Separate to that is the higher asset inflation effectively means a lower average cost of capital, which means you have to, to you know, what as we talked about, it sort of creates excess like surplus capacity, which will cause, you know, inflation on sort of goods basis to, to remain relatively subdued. And so we're all becoming to this view that it could never happen and that you're never going to get inflation. And that's why I think you're seeing modern monetary theory, because they're sort of all pointing to this idea of like, well, you didn't get it when you did it that time, so we should just print the money and spend it. And I think the, the pushback I would, what I would have on that is that if you see in this recovery, the Fed has expanded its balance sheet, but what we call the money multiplier, so the, the velocity of that money in the economy because of like Dodd-Frank and what we've done with the banks has actually come down quite a bit. So the net mm-hmm. result, even though we've had a, a big increase in money supply, was actually not as big as it it maybe looked like. And so, and we had excess capacity that had to be filled. So we're sort of like, you know, we didn't really see inflation because we had built things up and and then we had economic activity step down. And so you have excess capacity has to be filled. And so we didn't see it. And so now we're saying, oh, since we didn't see it, it's not going to happen and it won't happen. So therefore we should just borrow them. We should just print money and spend it. And I would say printing money and spending it is like that's Zimbabwe, Venezuela, the Weimar Republic. That's just yeah. when you start just printing the money and paying people with it, it absolutely will drive inflation. There's there's almost no way it doesn't. Like yeah. you just have to think about what the you know we we talked about the New Deal and like the infrastructure that we built in the U.S. I mean, just stop and think about what the today's dollars of like the cost of building that infrastructure. Yes. So basically, what you're saying is effectively that if we were to you know, again, if we were to decide to do something similar, what we would see is an is effectively a devaluation of the dollar over the well, short term. Right? Well, so that I mean that 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 is sort of the, the question because that's what's the reserve currency like. When do you have the dollar status, the reserve status of the dollar questioned? And that's mm-hmm. sort of the main. That to me is sort of the a real question mark. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's three years, five years, 10 years, 30 years. I, I have no idea. Um, but I do sort of, I do sort of wonder about, you know, what we're, what the reserve currency status, you know, and, and you, and sort of recognizing it and then taking advantage of it. You know what I mean? Like they're sort of having that status uh-huh. for years. And there's sort of this implicit idea that, oh, well, you know, you can't really default if you're in this reserve currency. And then just turning that to an explicit idea, like, well, you know, we, we can't default, so we might as well just spend as much yeah. as we want. Like, that sort of sees when it goes from implicit to explicit, I just wonder, there has to be some sort of response, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't, because um, I look at it as like this guy, Barry Eichengreen, wrote this book years ago um, yeah. called um, Exorbitant Privilege, which is about, um, about the reserve currency. And I, I'd say anyone should maybe take a look at that book. It's kind of interesting, but I'll have my own take on it. Cause I, I also think there's some interesting, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in further episodes about some of this, but you know, you talked about the 1970s and the loss of the, um, sort of the U S being as competitive. And it's not, I don't think it's coincidence that in the seventies is when sort of U S oil production really peaked and started to fall as a percentage of global production. And, and we, we, we became an importer, not an exporter. And we no longer had like an energy cost advantage. Um, and so, you know, running an industrial economy without any kind of real, uh, you know, advantage in terms of primary energy, um, mm-hmm. is sort of, I think that's an element of what, you know, what underpinned that. So, but then you, 
you know, we stop and think about what that means for um, a, a dollar of spending, right? So 70% of, you know, world trade is done in dollars. And there's a huge amount of debt, you know, non-financial debt outside the U.S. that's denominated in dollars. So there's a, you know, this sort of paradoxical need for dollars outside of the U.S. economy because there's a whole nother dollar economy kind of outside our borders. And that is what the reserve currency status really means. But the exorbitant privilege, and this is kind of how I think about it, is it allows you to export very low energy dollars for very high energy goods, right? So you stop and think about like every time you walk into a Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee and you put down your, what do they charge now? $5 for a cup of coffee? Roughly. Right? So yeah. think about what that is. Like that's the, you know, sunshine and rain that fell on the, you know, the plants down in wherever it is in Brazil or something to somebody collecting it, shipping it, processing it, roasting it, distributing it, like all of this to get all of this, this energy transformations just to take you to this little cup that you, that you go and buy. Right. So mm-hmm. it's sort of been expressed in terms of every dollar you have has like effectively one coffee cup full of oil in it. Right. Or the energy equivalent. And it's, and that's falling because the more you keep sort of printing it, then that amount actually is going down. So you're sort of debasing that, but as a reserve currency, you kind of continue to take advantage of that privilege because the dollars are needed. Basically, the the idea is that anybody who wants to do trade globally is going to need to hold on to a certain amount of dollars just to be able to do transactions. That's right. And as a result, we always have to expect that there's going to be a certain amount of U.S. debt out there floating in the world because people need to hold on to it. And so if if we tried to pay that off, we'd effectively halt commerce. That's right. Um, But the second part of that is that now that everybody needs to hold U.S. dollars, you know, effectively the global economy is being funded in a way by money we've already accounted for. And so like our, our, our export effectively is the dollar and, and we are, and what we are importing with that is our things like coffee and, you know, flat screen televisions and yeah, we, we export demand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we export demand. Bingo. And so, and so, I guess the big question here then is if that's our financial model, right? If that's mm-hmm. the financial model of the U.S., then that is automatically going to favor capital-intensive businesses. So it's going to favor financial services. It's going to favor technology. Uh, it's going to favor biotech, things like that. Mm-hmm. And this kind of moves us very nicely into one of the other areas which I wanted to discuss, which is how we use that debt and do we use that debt to meet that new paradigm? Because I I think one of the areas where we've been caught flat footed is that these changes have been slowly taking place in the U S economy, but we haven't been educating a workforce to meet those demands. Hmm. And so we have people who are unable to fill the roles that, are in high demand in the United States. Right. And again, that's a huge conversation as to how we address that issue. But I, I, I think the, 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 the big question we have going forward is two is maybe two or threefold. You know, number one, we have this huge group of people who are going to be leaving the workforce. Uh, we owe it to them to fulfill the promises made to them early on. So uh, that means funding their health care. That means 
social security and so on. Uh, we have a need to invest for the future if we're going to keep the economy growing. You know, so that means investing in education, that means investing in infrastructure, all those good things. And there doesn't seem to be room to do both without either taking on more debt or raising taxes or... Or experimenting with just printing money. Exactly. Exactly. So I'll drop that on the table. Tell me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of where my mind goes a bit because I was, you know, I put this in the context of this. I'd say, you know, the Manhattan Project, right, um, Mm -hmm. was just that project alone was over 1% of GDP in its peak year. Like, so the total cost was even more than that, but like, but in its peak year spending, it was, a, it was basically a percentage of the total GDP of the okay. United States on the project. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, similarly, the Apollo pro- like the Apollo project, right. Like that cost was enormous. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. $153 billion in today's, um, today's dollars. So you can mm-hmm. stop and think about it. that's like, you know, um, not a not small percentage either of, of total GDP. Meanwhile, you look at government outlays on science, technology, this kind of stuff that's basically fallen every year by, as a percentage of GDP, it's fallen like about a percent every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the last 30 years, it's fallen totally about uh, 30, 20% or so. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're spending less on this. So it's sort of like, it, it leads me to this point where I think like, we've just gotten so fat and lazy, Dan, <laughs> mm-hmm. that we just take certain things for granted. And we just assume like economies grow regardless of what the composition of what you do to them. Mm-hmm. It's just like magic, right? Like we just get productivity growth regardless of what you spend it on. Yeah, I mean, you look back, it's like DARPA, all this brought you the internet, like which unleashed all this stuff, right? So, but like yeah. where, you know, where is the equivalent, right? Like, I mean, I guess you could say Google is sort of the Bell Labs of today, but like, but overall, I, I just I think the numbers would say as a percentage of the total economy, it's just not not the same. And and I might I wonder, can you sort of take away from like investing and moving more to consumption and think that the growth rate is going to continue to be the same? And by the way, that's what all these deficit projections are based on. So these debt mm-hmm. projections and deficit projections assume that the next 30 years the growth is the same as the last 30 years. And I just told you earlier that that's not been the case. If you look at 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, it's been slowing. Productivity has been slowing overall on a 10 year moving average. Like, yeah, you get sort of accelerations and decelerations, but overall these things have been slowing. Um, you know, GDP growth itself is sort of a change in labor and change in productivity, right? So if you've got the labor growth, like that's demographics, that's slowing. Like we're aging mm-hmm. and we're, and the growth rate of the labor force is slowing. Yeah. Um, so you need, you need productivity to be higher than it was historically in order to just get back to the same GDP level. And yet the, the CBO projections that they're looking at over the next you know, 30 years to, to get to these sort of deficit and debt projections, assume we're at the same level we've been historically, despite the fact that we've been unable to reach that level consistently in the last 10 years. Well, and if you look too, those, those figures are, that baseline we're setting is post-World War II. And if you take a longer view of economic growth, 2% is actually the norm. Yeah. In World War II, we built a shit ton of ammunition capacity. One of the things you need for that is like nitrogen, right? So you make the, you know, post the, um, we had excess capacity once the war was over. We had all these ammunition factories. We basically turned them through what they call the Haber-Bosch process. We turned them into fertilizer factories. 
Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden you saw this sort of growth in productivity and, you know, you added, you know, powered your tractors and all the stuff that came along, but we've had this increase in sort of yields, which drove down the percentage of people working on farms. They, now they could go to the city and do other things and all this stuff like it drives incremental productivity through what we call factor mobilization. But that's, I mean, unless you're going to get an equivalent sort of concept, like, you know what I mean? You have to have an, an, an equivalent discovery to yeah. get at the next jump in productivity. And that's to your point, those types of things are going into these, these historical calculations. So you look back at like the growth rate post 1950. I mean, that's, that includes that. I guess there's a very interesting stew of, of factors going on here. And one of the earlier episodes we had this month, I was talking with someone who had studied the economy of Great Britain and, uh, and sort of what, what austerity did to them. And, you know, one of the conclusions or one of the, one of the things we, we chatted about was do these things ever end well like is does history provide a case of a soft landing where uh, a country kind of went on this unsustainable path of growth or unsustainable path of accumulating debt or what have you unsustainable path of expansion right right was there ever a case where they did that and then they got sort of close to the top and they're like eh, you know what guys let's kind of slow this down a bit and let's just kind of you know cool our jets it's never happened not once has it ever happened. It always right. ends terribly, and it always ends with people shooting at each other. That is always the way it works. And if you look kind of getting back, <laughs> On that note, good night, everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that brings us back to the gun discussion. No. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Investing for the future. Buy your bunker. <laughs> but it's like, if you look, is there anyone who would actually voluntarily do this? Is there one politician who would be like, let's slow it down a bit? Is there a consumer who'd be like, yeah, you know what? I want to spend more for my uh, for my meal. I want to spend more on that entree when yeah. I go out to eat. I yeah. want to spend more on a six-pack of beer. Right. Like, nobody's ever going to say that. And so I think, honestly, what needs to happen is these systems need to break down. People need to all of a sudden be in a terrible situation and get angry. And then they need to go off and look for somebody to take it out on. That's just kind of the way people work. We talk about the the sort of global nature of demagoguery nowadays and how every country has its own person popping up right. who is effectively feeding on the resentments of the people. And it's not exclusive to the industrial world. So it's not exclusive to the areas that are seeing the greatest degree of stagnation. Yeah, mean, not at all. Like, yeah. You know, you look at Eastern Europe, it's a problem. Uh, Brazil, which I found fascinating, uh, has their own issue with uh, Bolsonaro, who's a who's a big time um, demagogue to the degree where he got in a tiff with the French mm-hmm. and wouldn't sign anything with a big pen. Right. Because it's French. It's a French <laughs> pen. And he doesn't want to send that 25 cents over to Paris or, or whatever sounds it like is. A, sounds like an important hill to die on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I think the, the bottom line is we do have a lot of people not being taken care of. And, and we also, to be frank, we have this, um, we have this tremendous pocketbook that could still be used to divert funds back to those people, uh, and and yet there's no desire to change course. I think you know a couple things that a couple areas that were identified as potential places where you could help the debt issue is just the cost of healthcare. Number one, 
healthcare inflation is greatly outpacing all other kinds of inflation and becoming less and less affordable. If you address that, number one, you're addressing a big a big uh, cost concern for every consumer out there, for every person. But you're also addressing that issue of retirees. And the people who consume the most healthcare are the elderly. You reduce healthcare inflation, you reduce healthcare costs. You've got uh, that issue tackled to an extent. The second is immigration. And the second is just getting more young people into this country, more people adding more workers. And again, if you look at where the young people are, they're also from the places that are maybe the most maligned in our immigration dis- discussion today. Yep. No, you know? that's, that's right. I mean, we I think we brought that up a bit when we were talking about, uh, the immigration episode, um, yeah. that saying, when you look at the demographics, like we need these people, like we actually need, um, yes, we actually need immigration. Like, otherwise these projections are even worse because they, again, they assume sort of same levels as historical levels. Right. So yes, if you, if you now adjust that, you are basically ratcheting things lower. Um, so I, I, it's just hard to see how you, you know, you can make this work if you're not having people migrate. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think the, again, I think the bigger, or, or one of the big problems here is of course, that doesn't have an immediate effect. So it takes years to reduce healthcare inflation. Right. I actually looked up some data and the rate of healthcare inflation actually flattened for a bit and then just shot back up recently. Mm -hmm. But um, that takes a while. Immigration takes a while to see the benefits. Education takes a while. And so it's very, very difficult to sell people on the idea of we're going to do this because 20 years from now, we're going to be happy. Yeah, no, it's definitely, that's not what voters vote for in the short run. Getting them to think about the long run is very hard. If we're to look at the state of affairs today and we're to say, okay, what are we going to do? The clear conclusions are the trees don't grow to the sky. You know, we can't just keep kind of piling dollars on top of dollars and hoping economic growth takes care of it. We also can't depend on economic growth to even take care of spending at the current level because there's this, again, this sort of aging population that's going to eat away at that growth. If we're to do anything, if we're to say, okay, we need to arrest the debt or at least arrest the growth of the debt. We need to continue to invest for economic growth in the future. And, uh, and we need to do so in a way that doesn't renege on the promises we made those entering into retirement. It seems to me that we've got immigration as an easy lever. We have reducing healthcare spending or healthcare inflation as another lever we can pull. And, we have to find room to continue to invest in education and continue in, to invest in infrastructure so that there is actually an economy functioning in another 10 to 20 years. Uh, that, that all sounds about right. Now, how? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my suspicion is the answer has to be a little bit of all of it, right? So there has yeah. to be a little bit of restructuring. You know, instead of, fig- you know, you did this whole episode on defense spending, Right. And how absurd the whole way we go about figuring out defense spending is. And, and instead of actually trying to rationalize, you know, what we do here, instead we just built a new one. We're going to build a space force, apparently, right? Like we're going to have another arm of like to to put what military contracts through. Like I'm I'm just I'm fascinated. Like as to all right, we're going to create a new branch of the military to spend even more to justify spending even more money on this. And maybe we have to look at some of the sacred cows. I mean, you know, the reality is is 
you know, our enemies now, as far as I could see from a military standpoint, are people with RPG launchers driving pickup trucks. Or, or actually, I'd say there are two vectors, right? There seems to be predominantly that one or cyber warfare. Well, yes, exactly, exactly. Then there's then there's that, and so uh, I feel like that doesn't necessarily involve running a manufacturing plant in Ohio that pumps out tanks that are never going to see the light of day. You know, that's number one. That's an easy that's an easy one to go after. Mm-hmm. Um, I think again, we talked about it earlier our agricultural policy. Yep. You know, America is what sixty percent obese. Like we have enough food. In fact, we're exporting. We're exporting our topsoil to the rest of the world. So yeah. So I mean, I think it's fair to say that that agricultural policy has served its purpose, and maybe dialing that back a little bit might not be the worst thing. Or kind of framing how we look at that. And to be fair too, you know, and one of the topics we're going to be talking about later in the year, education. We spend more per pupil than. I think just about any other country. I think there's one other country that spends more per pupil yeah. than us. And and that's averaged across the states. Right. So there are some states that that so so there are some states that pay uh, higher than that per pupil cost, some that state p- spend lower, but even with that averaging out, we still spend more. And so maybe we have to look at like our is dumping money like is is just dumping buckets of money the right way to go. Right. Um, so not what, how much are we spending, but what are we spending yeah. on and what's the pay? Are thinking how you're even going about spending this and thinking more from a return on invested capital kind of way of view is, is sort of, a, because you know, the thing that gets squeezed out again, to your point, no one talks, talk about 20 years hence. So the things that get squeezed out are, are like basic research and like, that's the stuff that drives the long-term productivity growth. Right. So you, yeah. and if you, if you starve that, like you really bring into question sort of what the right growth rate should be if it's all about just kind of factor mobilization and consumption. It's not about creating, you know, net new productivity. One last note, totally unrelated to the subject at hand, but I'd like to dedicate, I'd like to make a dedication of this episode, Mike, to uh, Bob Embaro. Yes. Who, yes, who, um, who passed away uh, this week. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Mike and I go back to grade school and one of our other grade school friends, uh, fathers, Bob Embaro, uh, just passed away. So in honor of the Embaro clan, we'd like to uh, dedicate this episode to him. Two favorite things about this episode. First is that we discovered there's an optimal debt to GDP ratio that we've gone way past, and it takes incrementally more dollars to achieve the same economic effect with each dollar we borrow. Second, is that Mike pretty much cornered me into doing a series on America's food supply, so now I have to add that to the editorial calendar. But what we really need to chew on, and you can expect a cornucopia of food-related puns now, is what we've been discussing from the get-go. What are our priorities, and how do we meet today's obligations without shortchanging the future? And the answer is probably not the current strategy, which pretty much looks like, one, raise the debt ceiling, two, lower taxes, three, question mark, and then four, economic growth somehow helps us pay it off. Now, a lot of this goes back to the dysfunction in our current political system, and we're living in an era where neither party is rewarded by the people who vote them into office when they compromise. And maybe, just maybe, if we took the keys away from the two major parties and gave someone else a chance at the wheel, we'd see change. Now, Next month is Black History Month, and with that, we're going to be discussing Black History. 
Specifically, I've dedicated the month to exploring racism in America's history from the arrival of the first slave ships in 1619 to the Civil War and to the present day. And there are some great guests lined up, including two that offer comparative history of American Brazil, a country that has a similar racial history as our own and gives us a lot of insight into how we can deal with our current problems. I hope you'll join me. As always, theme music by Krellertack. You Don't Have to Yell is produced by the big Jano, Jason Bam. Let's kick it up a notch, Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.